This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, district attorney's offices around the state have not been complying with a two-year-old law requiring them to report their use of material witness warrants. The New Orleans City Council heard the funding details of a new power substation the Sewerage and Water Board hopes to build in partnership with Entergy New Orleans. This week, over a dozen civil rights groups submitted a wide-ranging complaint to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security alleging multiple human rights violations by the Pine Prairie Immigration and Customs Enforcement Processing Facility in Pine Prairie, Louisiana. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, contributing reporter Madeline Arufo. Hey, Madeline. Hi. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Okay, Madeline, we're going to start with you. Two years after the passage of a state law, DA offices around Louisiana have not released data on their office's use of material witness warrants. Will you explain what material witness warrants are, how they've been used in the past, and why are they controversial? So material witness warrants are issued by judges when it's believed that a witness or a victim of a crime is either refusing to come and testify about that crime or is unlikely to comply with a subpoena in general, and a subpoena is considered impractical in that situation. And the controversy with them is obviously that in some cases, victims may have legitimate reasons to not wish to testify, such as fear for their life or past sexual trauma in the case of sex crimes. Um, And this particular law, in fact, that's at issue here, in part was written to combat that particular issue and has It references another provision in the law which creates specific carve-outs for victims of sexual assault and domestic violence in an effort to stop prosecutors from compelling these folks to come in and testify against their abusers or their alleged abusers. So they're controversial um, and people would like for there to be more scrutiny of the use of these material witness warrants as a result. And part of the reason why this law was passed was in order to create that greater oversight, which we hope to have. Um, In particular, the law requires that district attorneys once a year report their data on however many material witness warrants were sought how many were issued and how many um, individuals were actually jailed as a result of these material witness warrants amongst some other data and it turns out that even though the the law is two years old so far it looks like no district attorney's offices have made any effort to actually report this data to the particular um, organization that the law identifies as where they should report it to which is called the Louisiana Commission on Law Enforcement. I just wanted to add that um, this law um, that was passed in 2019, kind of, uh, it came in the wake of, uh, you know, a major scandal around the New Orleans DA's office. The 2017 report from Court Watch NOLA identified, uh, if I remember correctly, six 
crime victims where the, the DA's office had sought a, and obtained a material witness warrant for them. Um, that included, uh, not all of them had been arrested, but it did include one victim who was arrested and jailed for about a week uh, for allegedly failing to cooperate. That report led to a lot of backlash against the New Orleans DA's office, first in the city council, and then it kind of grew into a, a, larger, a larger issue at the state level. Um, which is, you know, how we came to this law in, in 2019. And, and, and I'll add that, you know, it, you know, other reasons that they're, they're controversial is when people are jailed on these, on, on these material witness warrants, the bonds tend to be very high. The idea is to get them in jail. So the bonds tend to be extremely high, like in the $100,000 to $500,000 range, um, higher often than the actual defendant in the cases that, that are being prosecuted. And because it's not, you know, it's not categorized as a crime in the traditional sense, um, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, sentence attached to it or anything. You're just jailed until, until you cooperate. You don't get automatic uh, defense representation um, on a material right. uh, witness warrant. And to add to that, there have been a number of cases, if you remember the whole fake subpoena controversy that, that the lens broke, um, there have been a number of cases identified, in, including at least one that we covered extensively, uh, in which uh, under former DA Leon Canizero sought and obtained in some cases material witness bonds for witnesses after they had failed to comply with fake subpoenas. So we have seen multiple episodes where I think it's not unfair to call it abuse of these of these material witness warrants. Okay. So what does the law that was passed a couple of years ago by the state legislature say about reporting? So it says that by I believe February first each year, the district attorney's offices across the state are supposed to report the data on the number of material witness warrants that they sought, um, the number that were in fact issued by a judge, the number of um, individuals who were incarcerated as a result or jailed as a result. And I think there are a couple other provisions that I can't immediately recall, but mainly it's to collect information on how often these material witness warrants are being used. Um, and then by March 1st each year, um, the Louisiana Commission on Law Enforcement is supposed to publicize this data on their website. And that's actually stated in the statute that they're supposed to publish it on their website. And we noticed that it wasn't on their website. And so, you know, started asking questions and it turned out that they had never received the data um, and for a minute they thought that there was a chance the district attorney's offices had been reporting this to the Supreme Court of Louisiana, mm. which I'm not sure why the LCLE thought that, to be honest, um, but we checked in with them as well and they said no, um, that data isn't reported to us. So it looks like no one was reporting it and that's concerning because Obviously, there's, you know, a number of reasons like we discussed of why these are controversial. There's also the fact that it may deter victims of crimes from coming forward at all about, you know, especially a sexual assault case or a rape case because of fear that they'll be jailed. And so 
advocates that we spoke with were very concerned that this data reporting had not been taking place. They sort of hypothesized that because there was no provision in the law that fined district attorney's offices for their lack of compliance, um, there was essentially no real incentive for them to pay attention to this law. Although I've since heard from a couple of district attorney's offices that they just didn't seem to be aware of it at all, which is also concerning, considering that would mean that they are you know, unaware of a significant reporting provision in the law that presents a number of public health and judicial concerns. So, yeah. We've been through two cycles now that by law, they should have all been reporting, issuing these reports. Do you find it strange that every single one hasn't issued this report? I really do. And, you know, I have to go off of what the LCLE told me, which is just that they haven't received any reports since the the statute was passed. That's what they told us. Uh, it's it is remarkable because they district attorneys were certainly aware of the law at the time that it was passed because they essentially had negotiated the law down to its most um, sort of bare bones. The original intention of the advocates who came to get the law passed was to just create an outright ban on material witness warrants in all circumstances. The resulting ban only bans it in um, misdemeanor cases and in certain felony cases. They put in some requirements which were not that different from the the requirements that already existed in the code of criminal procedure on this uh, material witness warrants. But but you know they 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 arguably strengthened it to require that uh, you know prosecutors demonstrate through the submission of a sworn affidavit and you know whatever available evidence that they have you know including subpoenas that were sent out and ignored that they had tr- basically tried to do everything else. Uh, in order to get the to get these uh, vic- crime victims to appear, and that the crime victims, in spite of their best efforts, still refuse to appear. So that's that's how they can be used in uh, felony domestic violence and sex assault cases. I'll add when you ask about you know is it strange that some of them are seeming to claim that they never heard about it? Yes, it, I also agree it's strange. In particular, I, I think it's strange because. Especially with these, with the larger DA's offices, um, when when the legislature is is doing uh, is is working on bills that um, directly affect that affect them. how DAs do their business, you know these DAs offices are very involved typically in, in the negotiations, and when they aren't, or when they aren't directly involved, the Louisiana District Attorneys Association is always always involved. So it's odd that, that the DA's offices didn't know, and it's odd that apparently or, or possibly the District Attorney's Assist- Association, which sends regular updates on what's going on in the legislature to its members, wasn't telling them. And, you know, it makes me question if the fact, it makes me wonder if the fact that there were no penalties attached to this just meant that people decided they weren't going to take it seriously and inform the DA's association membership about it. 
because you know, I, you know the, the whole point of this reporting requirement is tied into the larger part of the law, the part that was more covered in the news, which puts restrictions on, on uh, domestic violence and sex assault. There's no good way for the legislature to independently, the legislature or other state authorities, to independently check on this uh, just because the way of the way records are kept in uh, Louisiana's uh, judicial districts, each judici- ju- judicial district has you know its own record keeping procedures. Some of them, some of them you know are fully digitized. Some are not. So they needed self reporting on this. And I'll add that you know not not only is is it strange that apparently or possibly the DA's association wasn't telling its membership. You know, we had other agencies, as one of one of your sources pointed out, including the Commission on Law Enforcement, which it seems very much like they were not going after this information, asking them for it. They seemed to think that it was supposed to go to the Supreme Court. Um, and, the, and these reports were also supposed, also supposed to be delivered to the legislature, the people who actually wrote these bills. Right. And apparently the legislature wasn't asking for them either. So let me ask this, it's maybe a little self-serving on the part of the lens, but is the fact that you've shown this light on this issue enough to give the law teeth or do they have to provide, do they have to go back and add punishment somehow or some other way to to force the issue? Well, um, I don't think we're going to see additional punishment being added um, just because the the advocates that I had spoke with and in particular one of the people who had worked in negotiating the bill um, Morgan Lamont told me that there was basically no chance that they would have been able to get a, a financial penalty attached to this legislation and still have it passed and that's because of just a general reluctance in the legislature to find different government subdivisions, people that they work with, you know. Um, So I doubt that we'll see that. However, since I started asking them about it, they did create a form on their website and they did send out a reminder to district attorney's offices across the state to have them fill out this information. And they did say that they had received responses starting on Friday. I believe that they sent this out last Thursday. And so there have been a couple responses. We should note that in Orleans Parish specifically, they said that they didn't have any material witness warrants. They never sought any material witness warrants in 2020, at least. And so there is still some question about whether or not um, offices that didn't utilize material witness warrants at all are required to report a negative report. But I mean, we'll see in the future if other district attorney's offices do that. But so far, it looks like at least some reports are coming in. Hopefully there will be comprehensive data on their website soon because I think that's information that I would like to see and that advocates would like to see um, going forward because otherwise, it's, it's going to be difficult to know, you know, the extent to which victims of crimes, you know, especially sexual assault, rape, domestic violence related cases are really seeing one of the worst ways that it seems like the law can work, which is to harm the person that is the victim of the crime. So re-traumatize and... Exactly. Right. Thanks, Madeline. It's a great story. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. 
My guests this week are contributing reporter Madeleine Arufo, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, and I cover education here at The Lens. If you've been a longtime reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org donate. Thank you. Okay, Michael, last week we talked extensively about the new sewerage and water board plan to build a new power substation that's dedicated just for them with Entergy. At a city council meeting this week, new details were presented on how that funding will work for the proposed power substation, the initial build. What did you hear about um, the cost of the project this week? Yeah, um, so just to provide some quick context, this project is is a pretty big deal um, for anyone who kind of pays attention to the problems that have plagued the sewage and water board here. One major issue that uh, the agency has faced is getting reliable power to its drainage pumps and its water pumps, um, the, the ones that pump water out of the city when it rains and the ones that bring water to our homes. So all in all, I mean, I haven't talked to a single person who doesn't think that this is a necessary investment and that doesn't think that this is overall a good idea. I wanted to start off the bat with that because we're going to get into some questions about the financing. But to give you the overall picture here, this isn't, at least at the moment, some project that's plagued by, you know, by scandal or whatever. This is an overwhelmingly supported uh, project that, you know, we're just keeping an eye on because it's a major, very important project. Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned last week that you were talking to, I believe, uh, Councilman Jeruso, who said something that, you know, seemed, you know, it was a good insight into this, which is, you know, we're tired of dealing with the power problem for the sewage and water board. You know, we're facing, you know, rising sea levels, climate change. We have bigger drainage and, and water production issues to worry about than this. And the fact that power keeps being a problem has just gotten in the way of doing anything else. And uh, this hopefully will help take care of that issue. Yeah, exactly. I think that every time you start talking about like replacing pumps, for example, which we do need to do, you know, you start with, well, we can't even get power to the ones that exist. So why even talk about buying new pumps? So yeah, this is a very solid investment for like future improvements in the sewage and water board, like Charles just said. However, everything costs money, and when, you know, the city spends money, you have to pay attention. So, you know, this has been pitched as a $74 million overall investment. And importantly, um, it's been pitched as a, uh, a financing model that won't raise either energy bills or sewerage and water board bills for customers. So details are a little bit more complicated than that. Um, I'll first explain what the $74 million figure um, is referring to. That's basically the upfront cost for installing this stuff. So the first kind of set of money is $34 million. And that's what Entergy is going to spend um, in upfront money to actually build the substation. Um, Another $20 million is coming from state funds. which will you know help configure it and attach it to the sewage and water board system and then another 20 million dollars is being spent by the city for something called frequency converters um the reason why this is necessary um is because as we were just saying a lot of these pumps are extremely extremely old and some of them rely on a type of uh electricity 
um, that is fairly obsolete in modern day and is not produced by energy. So the electricity that comes through um, the, the regular energy grid needs to be put through these frequency changers in order for them to be used by these very old pumps. So those are the three kind of uh, sets of money that get you to this $74 million figure. Um, where it gets a little bit trickier is on that $34 million upfront investment from Entergy. So what we found out is that although Entergy is putting that money up, Sewerage and Water Board is going to have to pay that back over time. But under the financing model um, that's currently arranged, that'll be paid off over 15 years. And the ultimate price tag for the Sewerage and Water Board will be $85.5 million rather than just that $34 million. The energy interest that they're charging is 9%? Yeah. So energy, one major way they make profit is, is by capital projects. And they're a regulated monopoly, which means that the way that they make profits is highly regulated. And so basically, the city council allows them to collect um, a certain return on investment um, in situations like this. And that rate was recently set at around 9%. It, it can kind of vary, but you know, 9% is a good, you know, a good marker of what it usually is. But yeah, so it's 9%, but it's also 9% every single year, right? So the first year when nothing pay, is paid back yet, it'll be 9% of that $34 million. The year after that, it'll be 9% of, you know, whatever debt still exists. And that's yes. how it can rack up so quickly. Um, we had done, you know, this is something that I didn't, to be honest with you, really understand a couple years ago when I was starting to cover Entergy. We have done some reporting since, you know, on the, the new uh, power plant in New Orleans East. Uh, we did some reporting on how the $210 million upfront cost is going to end up um, costing ratepayers, customers, upwards of $650 million over time. And so, you know, this interest can really rack up fast. And um, I think that in terms of trying to get this project together, one of the sticking points seemed to be getting Entergy on board to build this substation. Um, because you know you really need them to do it. They're the ones that know how to do it. They're the ones that are gonna have to be involved. They're the you ones know, that are gonna run it and maintain it. Right, so, exactly. Yeah. What Entergy has been saying is, you know, we have to go through our own internal corporate bureaucracy here. And you know that we have limited amounts of capital. And if we're gonna put up $34 million, we'd like to see some return on that. So. You know, part of the negotiations have been finding terms, you know, that were agreeable to Entergy to get them involved. Is it conceivable to bring them a, a giant $34 million check and say, here you go, if they can find alternate sources of funding at less so, than 9%, would Entergy play? Or is this part partly the reason they're going to do it is because of the money they are going to realize from the credit or the interest? That's a very good question. Um, I don't have an answer to it, but it is my top question as well. My guess would be that if they were doing this for absolutely no profit, they would not want to do it because, you know, it's just the vice president of capital projects is going to have to put in time on this. You're going to have to, you know, it's, it's, there is investment that they're going to have to make other than, you know, just that upfront cash in order to, to you know, construct this responsibly and, and in time. So, you know, it just takes up brain space. Right. So I don't know if for no profit they would take this on on their own. Uh, so that is a very, very interesting question. 
But it, it gets a little bit more interesting because one thing that we were asking, I asked Ramsey Green, the um, Deputy Administrative Officer for Infrastructure, uh, whether they had looked into any other you know, funding um, sources for this. The answer he gave was, number one, that Sewage and Water Board itself did not have the debt capacity to take on cheaper loans. Um, and we were talking about loans because just in the moment we are, were in historically, interest rates are generally extremely low. But obviously, you need something to you know back up debt when you when you take out a loan. And Ramsey Green was saying that you know they, they don't really have that debt capacity right now. The other answer he gave me um, goes back to you know your question, Carolyn, which is he was basically like we need energy involved in this. So you know it sounded to me like part of this was you know I don't know for sure, but it definitely sounds like part of this was making sure that energy was gonna you know invest in this and be involved. It seems like Entergy would be is uh, amenable to a, a penalty-free early payoff on this, right? Yeah. So we haven't heard from Entergy on it, but um, Gasan Corbin, you know, at City Council, basically said they're going to demand a clause in this agreement, which will allow them to repay the debt whenever they want. Um, you know, it could be in the first year or the second year without having to pay any sort of penalty to Entergy. So that leaves the door open for the Sewage and Water Board or the city to go out and find some cheaper money and pay back the energy loan and then, you know, pay back a different loan at a lower interest rate. Hmm. And, you know, th that especially gets interesting. The city right now is talking about putting out the biggest bond issue in the city's history, right? Upward, you know, something around 200, $300 million um, that's about to be flowing in. So, you know, I, I think that there's going to be questions around, you know, where can you put that money to lower your you know, long-term debts. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's important because they're saying that this isn't gonna raise bills, but we're also constantly trying to find you know, money for the sewage and water board. Any money we can get you know, is so important. And you know, we're talking about $50 million in interest payments over the next 15 years, which certainly could be used for some other purpose at the sewage and water board, even if it didn't ultimately affect bills. Right. Even more interesting to me about this story is the is the part at the end about the beneficial electrification. Go into the history of New Orleans, the city council mandating by 2040. What are the two steps that they're out that they're mandating 2040 and 2050? Yeah, so, so this, the council recently passed a, a clean and renewable portfolio standard. And, and, and the two requirements, as you said, the first one is that they're going to have to reach net zero emissions and 90% renewable energy by 2040, by 2040. And then by 2050, they're going to have to reach zero carbon emissions, period. So I think that when, when you're talking about beneficial electrification, basically what that is, is there are a lot of things like cars, for example, that get their energy from internal engines. But the internal engine that you have in your car is way, way, way less efficient than the energy that, you know, a major utility like energy is able to produce, right? They just produce it on a bigger scale. Their engines are bigger, you know, they, it's just a more efficient process. So the, the idea of beneficial electrification is that you can make a huge dent in overall carbon emissions by bringing certain things onto the electric grid. The Surge and Water Board is using natural gas to produce a pretty small amount of electricity. It is burning a lot of fossil fuel in order to produce uh, a, a relatively small amount of electricity to run 
their own pumps. If they're instead buying, you know, getting electricity from a major producer like Entergy, Entergy is producing that same amount of electricity a lot more efficiently. Right. So the idea that these things reduce net carbon emissions is not controversial. Where it becomes a little bit more controversial is whether utilities like Entergy should able, be able to get credit for those carbon reductions in their net carbon emission goals. So there's a difference between a net carbon emission goal and a carbon emission goal, period. So a net carbon emission goal basically allows you to do other things besides just getting off fossil fuels. So one common thing is that you can buy renewable energy credits to offset your use of fossil fuels. So that's one thing that can apply. Another one that Entergy had been fighting for um, as you know, the, the city council was creating this portfolio standard, they wanted beneficial electrification account as well. Now, renewable um, and clean energy advocates were really against that clause, and the city council ended up taking it out of uh, the renewable portfolio standard, except not entirely. So, so basically what changed is that after, after pressure from some advocates, the council changed um, the beneficial electrification part of the renewable portfolio standard to force energy to apply every time it took on a beneficial electrification project that it wanted credit for. So basically you don't get credit for these projects automatically, but you have to apply with the city council to get credit and Entergy announced that they are going to apply to try and get some, some carbon credit um, from the city council. Yeah, this is a fairly uh, you know standard maneuver in city city ordinances. The analogy for land use would be like a conditional use uh, permit in the zone in the zoning ordinance. So you know there are certain there are certain parts of town where you can you can you can just build a hotel because hotels are always allowed to be in these parts of town. Um, and there are certain parts of town that allow hotels, but only if you apply for a permit to build one. And it goes through a whole, you know, and it goes through a whole review process through the city planning commission and stuff like that. Um, and so this this is kind of like that, but with you know carbon reduction. The reasons why people have argued against using beneficial electrification for these, you know, carbon um, goals is not only because it allows utilities to keep burning fossil fuels, but there's also already huge existing incentive to do these electrification projects because um, it adds massive amounts of sales. So if all of our cars suddenly switched to being on the electric grid instead of buying gas, it would be a gigantic sales bump to, to a company like Entergy. And the yeah. same thing with Sewage and Water Board, they're adding a very, very, uh, you know, a big customer here that uses a lot of electricity. So the, the argument again is that Entergy should already be working to electrify these systems. You don't need these mandates to force them to do it. They should already be doing these things in their own profit interest anyway. Ah, okay. Thanks, Michael. Um, thank you, Carolyn. Okay, Nick, in criminal justice, a complaint submitted to the Department of Homeland Security and signed by civil rights groups, including the ACLU of Louisiana and the Southern Poverty Law Center, documents overuse of solitary confinement and other violations at an ICE detention center in Pine Prairie, Louisiana. What does the report say about how solitary confinement was used? And and could you back up for me though first actually and um, tell us about Pine Prairie? So Pine Prairie is an, an ICE processing uh, center in, in Louisiana. So it's an immigration detention facility. And so immigrants who are being, are, are being held there awaiting you know, either awaiting adjudication on asylum claims or deportation proceedings um, and are in various stages of, of, of the 
those proceedings. So people who, who may have gotten picked up crossing the border or people who may have come to a country who, who want to get asylum, say they've been being persecuted in their countries. There are a wide range of immigrants in various phases of that adjudication process. Importantly, I think for what we're talking about here, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't think you mentioned this, Nick, that uh, Pine, Pine Prairie is one of a number of uh, ice processing facilities that is not run directly by the federal government, but is run by a, uh, a private prison operator called the GEO Group, um, which is one of, I believe, the two biggest uh, uh, private prison operators in the country. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, yeah, it should be noted that, that in Louisiana right now, I don't believe there's, there's any state prisons that are run privately anymore. And the federal government has also said that they will now start phasing out the use of private prisons uh, in their Federal Bureau of Prisons, but have not made that same commitment for, for these uh, immigration detention centers. Okay. What did they find about the use of solitary confinement at Pine Prairie? What the report really focuses on is the overuse of solitary confinement in response to things like mental health crises and as a punishment for protests around conditions of confinement and denials of, of release, but in particular focuses on the use of solitary confinement as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. Um, so people who were showing symptoms of, of COVID-19 or had been exposed to COVID-19 um, were being put in solitary confinement, being held in cells for 22 to 24 hours a day, receiving no access to any outdoor time or recreational materials, you know, basically using the same, the same isolation that, that would be used for, you know, punishing someone for a disciplinary infraction or for doing something wrong in the, in the facility and using that for people who were, who were sick, who were uh, ill. And, you know, the, the report uh, argues that these people weren't receiving any medical attention either. So there's kind of this, exacerbation of a, of a medical crisis. Yeah. What are the other issues they found? There are kind of general sanitary and, and concerns over, over food and water. People complain that, the, that uh, they weren't able to, to access clean water. Uh, a lot of the food was expired or being, you know, had to drink expired milk regularly. This all comes from interviews from detainees done by these various uh, legal organizations, legal advocacy organizations, and and really, this is the that was the the primary source for this report. They talked to a couple of lawyers who worked on it, and they said they had a really difficult time getting any information from ICE or the facility uh, itself. There have been complaints now for years, and in particular during the, the COVID nineteen pandemic, of, about these immigration detention facilities in general, and about Pine Prairie specifically. I think this same day or the day before the, the, my story came out, there was a, a report in BuzzFeed that um, uh, detainees who, who, who were on hunger strike or, you know, protesting, again, conditions of confinement um, were being force fed by ICE and GEO Group staff. And that occurred in Pine, at, at Pine Prairie as well. And what's the response that ICE and GEO Group are saying? Well, I did not get a response from ICE, uh, GEO Group. Uh, sort of generally denied the allegations, uh, said that they were politically motivated, um, but didn't really address anything specific. So this was styled as a, you know, a complaint to DHS and the uh, the Inspector General for DHS. Are they contemplating, uh, you know, 
filing anything in federal court? Yes. So the complaint, the complaint to DHS is required before they file something in federal court. They need to basically exhaust administrative remedies, show that they've done what they could internally to to change things. The the lawyers I spoke to basically said, you know, if we don't hear anything from DHS, we're going to be seriously considering litigation. I mean, another thing, I've issued complaints kind of similar to these in the past uh, for various issues and have basically very little response. Um, And I think part of what they were hoping with this complaint is, I I don't know if it was the first one they've issued under the new administration, under the Biden administration, but I think they're certainly hoping for maybe a a more robust investigation into some of these issues. And within this complaint, they've sort of linked back to a number of other complaints uh, that they've previously made. I think I think that litigation is possible, but I also think that they're hoping they might actually, you know, with this complaint, you know, get some movement from uh, from DHS and from ICE to actually seriously investigate this. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Nick. Yeah. Thank you, Karen. Good reporting this week, you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Madeline Arufo, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crestel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>